We have arrived in the final week now of our series called Peaks and Valleys. We've been looking at the life of David for, uh, this will be the, the 11th and uh, unfortunately the final week. And so one last time, we're going to look at, at a, uh, an episode recorded in the life of David. It's actually the final episode of David's life as recorded in 2 Samuel. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 10 through 25, which is, is all the way to the, the um, end of the book. So let me go ahead and, and read that on the front end so we all know what we're talking about. We'll get into it. Verse 10. It says, David's conscience troubled him after he'd taken a census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. <clears throat> when David got up in the morning, a revelation from the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three choices. Choose one of them, and I'll do it to you. So Gad went to David told him the choices, and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land, to flee from your foes three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague in your land three days? Now think it over and decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. David answered, Gad, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time, and from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, but the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. <clears throat> when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him, so he went out and bowed to the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so the plague on the people may be halted. Arana said to David, my lord the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. My king, Arana gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. The king answered Aaron, and no, I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel ended. This is God's word. <clears throat> um, if you're new to church, or at least new to our church. Um, really hopping in the deep end this morning. Appreciate you being here. This is probably not the first week I would have picked for you, but here we are. Um, it's important to remember that the author of First and Second Samuel, you know, wrote this book, not only to show us who David is, but to show us how great David was, 
that author decided to conclude this book that's basically the biography of David's life with this story that in no uncertain terms uh, is, is just the record of another catastrophic failure in David's life. So the first question is, why decide to end the book on that note? If, if your purpose was to show us how great of a, of a person and a shepherd and a king David was, why is this the final episode in the book that's basically the biography of his life? And you know, at, a, at first glance, the only conclusion you can arrive at is that you know, David must have beat up the author of 2 Samuel in high school, and this is his way of getting David back for thousands of years now. Um, the truth is, though, like everything else in Scripture, there's a whole lot more to this story than meets the eye. And so what I want to do one last time in this series is take a look at, at uh, this episode in David's life, and I want to specifically kind of look at this in three different parts, three different moves to today's teaching. We're going to look at what David did wrong. We're going to look at how God responded to it. Uh, and then we're going to look at how even in the midst of this failure, David found a way to show us what real greatness looks like. So the first question we have to answer here is, is what exactly did David do wrong here? In verse 10, first verse I read, it says, David's conscience troubled him after he'd taken the census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. So we're told here that David has taken a census of the troops, which meant he sent you know, his officers throughout the land of Israel um, to count how many people were able to serve in the military. Evidently, this census was, was morally wrong. It was sinful. And in this story, it brings about God's judgment. So I think the first question for people coming in cold is, what's the issue here? You have on the front end of this story a king who decides to figure out how big his army actually is, how many people are actually able to fight. That looks like the most common sense decision a king could make, and, and so the question is, why is this bad? And, and the answer is, uh, I'll save you a lot of research, the answer is, it depends who you ask. I, uh, I read about a half dozen different commentaries this week, and I found that no two of them perfectly agreed about why this census was wrong. Each of them had a different answer, and it's not that their answers were competing. They weren't. It's just that I think all of them was partially true. But what I want to do is give you what I'm convinced is the main reason, the ultimate reason why this census was such a, a big deal. Up to this point in Israel's history, they had a volunteer army. And a volunteer army was an army that you would only muster on an as-needed basis. For instance, when you were being invaded or, or you know, for some uh, reason like that. So with this census that David called, what was happening is Israel was moving toward having something they had never had in the history of their existence as a nation, which is a standing full-time army. And I'm just going to point out here, regardless of what any king ever tries to tell you, if you happen to have a conversation with the king of a nation in your lifetime, uh, that there is exactly one reason why you develop a standing full-time army, and that's because you want to do some invading of your own. Uh, let's ask the question here, what is the purpose of counting how many people in your nation are able to fight? It really just boils down to this. The reason you count up your fighting force is so you can look at the surrounding nations, figure out what their numbers are, 
Compare yours to theirs. Get a good read on who you're stronger than so that you're then able to go invade them, oppress them, and get really rich in the process. That's how every other nation in the ancient Near East did things. And actually, as history goes on to show us, that's exactly what went on to happen to Israel. This is what Babylon did to them. This is what Persia then did to Babylon. This is what Rome did to basically everybody. This is just how life worked in the ancient Near East. And so what's happening here is for the first time in this nation's history, it's, it's moving in the direction of every other nation, which is, is it's developing this military force that it's going to then use uh, so as to oppress and enslave the surrounding nations for the purpose of enriching itself. The problem with that, among other things, is that God did not call his people Israel to be the terror of the whole earth. According to Psalm 48, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was to be the joy of the whole earth. They're moving in a marked different direction here. That's the issue, and that's the cause for God's judgment. Now, before you know, I get to point two here, uh, I just feel inclined to call out the elephant in the room. <clears throat> in our culture, you know, the modern West, we have a tendency to really love the idea of God as uh, you know, loving and merciful and forgiving. We love that God. We appreciate that God. That's the God that most people have no problem believing in or, or praying about or, or talking about or thinking about. But in our culture, you know, along with that, we also really struggle with the idea of God being a God of, of um, wrath or a God of judgment. And so there's a tendency, specifically in our culture, to read this story, to read that God winds up killing 70,000 people and the author could not be more clear about that. There's no other way to read that. That in response to what David does here, God ends the lives of 70,000 Israelite men. Especially in our culture, there's a tendency to come away from this story with a mindset that says, how could anyone worship a God like this? Now, I'm willing to bet that there's people here right now that, that have that mindset. And, um, and I just want to point out that even if you don't, I can promise you that people that you know and you love have that mindset and, and, and think that way. And if you have any desire to communicate your faith in an intelligent way, you have to be able to speak to that. So let me just offer you, you know, a, a, um, a perspective here. Uh, as a thought experiment, take a moment and, and ask yourself, how do you think you would respond to this story once you heard this? How do you think you, you would hear this story if you were not only alive during the time of this census, but you were born not into Israel, but into one of the nations that surrounded Israel. In other words, one of the nations that David here is getting ready to oppress and enslave. All right, let me paint a picture for how the rest of your life is going to go. If God decides not to intervene here in the lives of his own people, here's what's going to happen. A couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months are going to go by, and an Israelite army is going to show up at your village. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And when they get there, they're going to do what all armies did in the ancient Near East. They're going to kill all of the oldest men and women who don't really serve any purpose in society. Uh, they're, they're going to take the younger women as concubines. That's your mom. That's your sisters. That's your friends. Uh, they're going to take the younger men. They're going to force them uh, to live as an, uh, uh, slaves for the rest of their miserable lives. That's what's going to happen to you if God decides not to intervene here. And so if you were born during the time of this census into a surrounding nation and you heard about God doing this, the takeaway that you would come away, what you'd come away from this story with is not, man, the God of Israel is such a monster. The takeaway you'd come away with is, wait a minute. So you're telling me that the God that Israel serves is so passionate about justice 
that he's willing to punish his own people in order to protect those who don't even worship him as God. I have never heard of a God like this before. And first and foremost, that's the point of this story, that God is a different kind of God. He's not like the other gods throughout human history. And because he's different, he calls his people to be different. Israel has failed to do that here, and so God has decided to intervene. So the question is, how's God going to respond to this? And you see the answer to that in verses 11 through 13. It says, when David got up in the morning, a revelation from the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three choices. Choose one of them, and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David, told him the three choices, and asked him, Do you want three years of famine to come on your land, to flee from your foes three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague in your land three days? Now think it over and decide what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. So what you're reading here is that God sends his prophet Gad and says, David, judgment's going to fall on the nation of Israel because of this. Uh, It's going to fall in one of three ways, and and you get to choose. It's going to be three three years of famine, three months of military defeat, three days of of plague. And what's interesting about this is even though David gets the the ability to choose uh, which one of these three punishments he's going to accept, um, they, they all accomplish the same thing. Um, The the purpose of all three of these punishments uh, is to keep Israel uh, from becoming this kind of world superpower in the ancient Near East that it desired to be. Because think about it. If David decides uh, that that he's going to take three years of famine, uh, well, a famine then is the modern-day equivalent of an economic recession. This basically means that all of Israel's wealth was going to be wiped out, and it was going to have to import everything from the surrounding nations who would then be able to charge them literally whatever they chose. Uh, If David goes for option number two, that's uh, three months of military defeat, then you're literally under the boot of a foreign invader. If he goes for option number three, uh, and and there's a plague that wipes out thousands of people, then obviously there goes your army. And so regardless of what David chooses here, the outcome is going to be the same. And this is not, this isn't arbitrary on God's part. This isn't just God being spiteful. What God's doing is he's going after and he's taking away the cultural idols that have begun to develop in the nation of Israel which are the same cultural idols that have have tended to develop in every nation throughout human history. That's the idol of wealth and the idol of power. These are the idols that Israel started trusting in, and they started desiring more uh, than God himself. And so God is dealing with them so as to destroy their idols. And in doing so, God is, he's accomplishing at least two things. First off, he's saving Israel from becoming this nation of oppressive, abusive, you know, kind of monsters. But not only that, he's also saving the surrounding nations from what Israel would become without his intervention. And what you and I should understand today, what we should know, is that God still deals with people the way that he dealt with Israel then. At least I can speak in my own life personally. I'm sure a lot of people can attest to this. One of the surefire ways you can know that God is dealing with your heart is because he allows you to lose something that you've told yourself you need. For David, that was an army. He needed military strength to kind of impose his will on other people, to enrich himself and elevate his platform and get wealth and all the security that he thought that that would bring him. So God allowed him to lose the thing that he told himself he needed. And I don't know, you know, if we had a microphone that we passed around the room today, I'm sure we'd hear all kinds of stories of people who God has dealt with the same way. And he doesn't do that because he's spiteful. He doesn't do that because he's arbitrary. He does that to, not to destroy us, but to deliver us and to develop us. 
I came across a quote this week from a theologian named A.W. Tozer. This is a, a real-life quote that I'm going to read you. He said, To do his supreme work of grace within you, God will take from your heart everything you love most. Everything you trust in will go from you. Piles of ashes will lie where your most precious treasures used to be. The process that Tozer is describing there is probably one of the most painful things we will experience in this life. It feels like being kept awake for your own surgery because that's exactly what it is. It's surgery. But the point is, only a God who loves you would care enough about you to perform surgery on your heart rather than let you build your life on things that are eventually going to lead to your own destruction. And so David, he says to David, which one of these three do you want to pick? David chooses the third. He chooses three days of plague. But what I want to focus on is why David chose this. He says in in, in verse 14, it says, David answered Gad, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. The reason he spoke that way is because what those first two two punishments had in common, whether you have a three-year famine or three months of military defeat, what what both of them have in common is you're putting yourself at the mercy of other people. Uh, And so David here is saying, I trust the mercy of God before I trust the mercy of any human being I've ever met. And what he does here with this answer is David is proving that he has a far more robust And he has a far more comprehensive understanding of who God is than than most of us do. What I mean by that is is most of us tend to have a very, even if we never say this out loud, even the way that we relate to God, we think about God, uh, if we think about him at all, we we all have this tendency to have a very one-dimensional view of God where we tend to overemphasize some of, 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 of who he is while underemphasizing some of who he is. So let me give you kind of two caricatures of this. One very common one-dimensional view of God is, is a God who's just always angry. Uh, he's a God who, who the only thing he cares about is justice, and so he, you know, he's, he's constantly smiting people who don't respect him or don't obey him, and he laughs while he sends them to, sends them to hell. That's a very one-dimensional view of God. It's about, you know, it's a God who, who, who just simply loves to judge. The problem with that view of God is that Scripture doesn't support it. All right, in, in second cha- uh, second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. I, I love this. It says, Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the Father's heart of God according to Scripture. He does not desire that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. Psalm 145, verse 9 says, The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Not just people that love him and worship him and serve him and whatever else. His compassion rests on all he has made. Right? And then, of course, uh, you have the other kind of one-dimensional God. This is the view of God that, you know, he just loves everybody, and he accepts everybody, and he would never tell anybody that they're wrong about anything they've ever thought or done or decided because he just wants you know, make sure everybody feels great about themselves all the time. And again, the problem with that view of God is that not only does Scripture not support that, as this and a thousand other stories in Scripture make plain, but I would also offer you that, that anybody who thinks long enough doesn't even want a God like that. Uh, if, I, if I can just do a, a simple kind of analogy here or, or, or 
example here, I don't think anybody actually wants a God who's all love and no justice. And, and let me go ahead and prove that in about 30 seconds. If your car was stolen later today, somebody knows where I'm going with this, and you knew who stole your car, and you brought them to court, and you compiled this airtight case against them, <laughs> and the judge said, wow, this looks really bad, but we just love everybody in this courtroom, and I would hate, <laughs> I would hate for your friend to feel bad about himself, so case dismissed, you're going to very quickly come into contact with exactly how much the human heart needs there to be justice in this world. That's a very simple kind of flat, stupid analogy. But if I can ask you, zoom out on a cosmic scale throughout the whole history of mankind. You think for any length of time about all of the injustice that's taken place all of the oppression, all of the abuse, all of the violence that's taken place. You, you talk about J Jewish people that had to endure concentration camps or, or Africans that had to endure chattel slavery or any of the millions of people that have endured the genocides, some of which are still taking place today. You zoom out from that for any length of time and you realize a God that never judges anybody or anything just doesn't care about us. And thankfully, Scripture says that's not what God is like. And so what you, what you have here is, in David is a far more comprehensive understanding of who God is. David knows that he deserves judgment because he knows that God is a God of justice, and yet he willingly puts himself in the hands of God because he also knows that God is a God of mercy. And so if, if, if you want to paraphrase what he's saying here, he's basically saying, I trust that even though this sin needs to be dealt with, that the God I serve has such a strong desire to show mercy to his people that we're safe in his hands than we are anywhere else. So I choose to fall into his hands. And so he chooses the three days of plague. And then in verse 15, we read, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. And from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Now, I, I read from the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm, I'm thankful for because that translation gets this verse literally correct. You can read verse 15 in other versions of the Bible, and it'll simply say that 70,000 people died. But in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say 70,000 people. It says 70,000 men. And that's a really significant detail because what you realize God is doing here is he is deliberately decimating the army of the nation of Israel, the fighting force of Israel. And again, and especially in our culture, there's a tendency to look at that and say, just be completely taken back by that. But what happened in this story is, is you're seeing God refusing to stand idly by while his people put together an army that was created for an unjust purpose. And so three days of this plague are almost done, and, and then we read this in verse 17. It says, when David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, look, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who's done this wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. What David is saying here, and you got to remember, long before God put David in a palace, he was raised in a pasture. Long before he served Israel as a king, he was a shepherd. What you're seeing here is David is saying, I'm the shepherd these people are just sheep, so strike me instead. What David is saying is let your punishment fall on me so that your mercy can fall on these people. Maybe something about that sounds familiar to you. 
And what God basically says to David is, is there does need to be a sacrifice, David, but, but you're not going to be that sacrifice. And so he, he instructs David to go up to the threshing floor of a man named Arana. David purchases that threshing floor, which is years down the road where the temple would be built and sacrifices would be made for the sins of God's people for years and years. And at that threshing site, David builds an altar, he sacrifices animals, and just like that, this plague is stayed and the people are saved. And so ends this episode of David's life, and so ends 2 Samuel, the book that's basically the biography of David's life. Now, first and foremost, when you zoom out from this story, what you can see is that, that there's, you know, there's clearly, in a really powerful way, uh, this final episode of David's life as recorded in 2 Samuel is pointing forward to Jesus. Because what you're seeing here is that David, this shepherd king, uh, is intervening on behalf of God's people by making a sacrifice for them. And you really can't read that without your mind immediately thinking about Jesus, who in John's gospel account identified himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, at Calvary, what we see is that Jesus not only made a sacrifice for us, but he was willing to actually become the sacrifice for us. And now the hope that we have in the gospel is that though all we, like sheep, have gone astray, every single one of us can be brought back into the fold of God and find healing and find rest because Jesus, the good shepherd, was wounded for us. So there's all kinds of powerful imagery here that points forward to, 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 uh, to Jesus, to the gospel, to the hope that we have. But the question, of course, that this raises is, is what does this mean for us today? I mean, if you look at this story at face value, I think one of the takeaways that you can have is you should not try to develop an army for the sake of oppressing the nations around you, which is really good advice. Not terribly, I hope it's not terribly relevant for any of us, uh, but it's good advice. You get a little bit deeper here, and I think what you can see in this story is that, you know, the moral is you shouldn't trust in human ability, you should Put your trust in God and his strength. And again, great, that's true. I think you could probably pull that from about 75% of what you're going to find in Scripture, and it's a little bit intangible. I think there's something a lot deeper here for us that's far more relevant to each and every one of us and far more practical for us, even as we go about our lives today. And to figure out what it is, the only question we have to ask here is, is actually the, the, the question that we asked at the very beginning of our time together. It's why would you end the book of 2 Samuel that, that is really just the biography of David's life, why would you choose to end here? Because this is, there's, no, there's no other way to interpret this other than seeing that this is just another record of another failure, a, a far more catastrophic failure in the life of David. And yet, even in the midst of this failure, David shows us the picture of true greatness, and in order to see this, in order to see this, all you have to do is compare this failure to an earlier failure in David's life. In verse 10 of this story, David says this kind of famous phrase that he's a little bit known for in his later years. It's just three words. He says, I have sinned. Now, you've heard David say those words before. The last time that he said those was back in chapter 12, which is, if you've been with me through this series, uh, we spent the last two weeks looking at chapter 12. That's where David 
stole a man's wife and had that man killed so that he could then marry her. That's the episode with David and Bathsheba. Back then in chapter 12, David says, I have sinned. And here, at the very end of his life, as recorded in 2 Samuel, he says, I have sinned. But I'd ask you to note the differences between these two failures in David's life. All right, first off, in chapter 12, David says, I have sinned only after God sent a prophet into his life that had to tell him this story about this horrible rich man who stole the lamb of a poor man and did all these terrible things, got David all ramped up and saying the man in that story needs to die, and then Nathan drops the bomb on David, you know, hits him right in the chest and says, you're the man in that story. What Nathan basically did is theologically beat David over the head with a two-by-four to get him to see what he'd done and who he'd become. And it was only after that that David said in chapter 12, I've sinned. You notice here, here David says, I have sinned even before God sends a prophet into his life. And again, back in chapter 12, David says, I have sinned only after he knew that there were going to be consequences, very painful, very public consequences for his sin in his life. And if I can, let me just tell you something that you already know. If you only say, if someone only says, I'm sorry, when they know there's going to be consequences for the decisions that they've made, that more than anything else proves that that person is not sorry for what their sin has done to God, and they're not sorry for what their sin has done to other people. They're sorry for what their sin has done to them. And that's not repentance, the way Scripture talks about repentance. That's just self-pity. And self-pity is never a powerful enough force to change a human heart. All right, back in chapter 12, David knew. He'd been outed publicly. His poll numbers were going to take a dive. I mean, he was going to fall out of favor in the public's eye. God had said this, this, uh, this destruction that you've, 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 you've caused in the life of, of Uriah and Bathsheba, it's going to be meted out in your life for generations to come. The point is, anybody would say, I'm sorry, in that situation. But here, at the end of 2 Samuel, even though there's none of that, it says in verse 10, David's conscience troubled him. Now, if you look up that phrase in Hebrew, what it literally translates to is David's heart smote him. His heart smote him. And so what you're seeing here is for the first time in David's life, at the very end of this book that's the biography of his life, is David finally got to the point where he didn't need a prophet to smite him. He didn't need public opinion to smite him. He didn't need punishment and consequence to smite him. In verse 10, he didn't even know there was going to be punishment or consequence. His own heart smote him. And what his life is finally showing us at the end is what the picture of spiritual maturity is, what the, what the picture of genuine growth is, what the picture of leadership is. It's what the picture of greatness is. Greatness in God's economy, I think this is so important to understand, greatness in God's economy if I can use that phrase, God's kingdom, God's family, God's eyes, whatever you want to call it, is not marked by never needing to repent because that's a delusion. All right, according to Jesus Christ himself, this is a, this is a healthy thing for me to remember. According to Jesus, every moment of our existence that we do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, every moment of our existence, we're not doing that. We need to repent. That means that if you ever arrived at a point in your life where you didn't think you needed to repent, you would need to repent of thinking that. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, all of life is repentance. All right? 
And so what we're seeing here, and, and what we can see time and time again in Scripture, is the greatness, it's not about never needing to repent. Greatness is marked by a heart that is increasingly willing to repent more and more quickly. A spiritually mature person, according to Scripture, is able to do exactly what David does here, which is admit, admit when you've been wrong, graciously, quickly, and without anybody even needing to point it out in you. All right, a spiritual infant is somebody who simply can't do that because a spiritual infant is somebody who might say, yeah, I believe in God or might say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but underneath that, their identity, and I think this is all of us to some degree, our identity is still found in this idea that we're a good person that has our life together and we don't mess up too often. And so when it comes time to repent, it's almost like it's destroying our self-image. It's undoing the foundation that we've built our life on. And so it's an incredibly traumatic thing. So we avoid it. We deny it. We punish people who try to speak into our lives. That's why somebody eventually has to come along and do what Nathan did for David, which is beat us over the head with a two-by-four to get us to entertain the idea that, yeah, there might still be some room for growth in my life. But the point is, when you build your identity on what David's final episode in his life is pointing forward to, when your identity is built on the reality that you are loved by the good shepherd to the point that he was willing to lay his life down for you, when you see how committed God himself and the person of Jesus is to you, when you know that you're simply a sheep that went astray, that has been brought back into the fold of God by the mercy of God, that you're nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, when you know that, then repentance is no longer traumatic to you. Repentance is no longer devastating to you. Repentance is just an opportunity for you to become more and more of what Jesus has already declared you to be. And so you repent more quickly and you repent more graciously as your life goes on. That's what we're seeing here at the, at the end of David's life. It's the picture of true greatness. And if you're wondering, well, how do I get to that point in life? I'd love to be the kind of person that, that repents you know, early and often and isn't so undone every time I come face to face with my failure. Well, if you, if you look at the last 12 chapters of 2 Samuel, the space between you know, David and Bathsheba to David here, what you're seeing is that generally speaking, the only way that you and I move from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity is by failing over and over and over again and rising from those failures with a greater understanding of our need and God's grace. That's how we grow. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you have heard that name before. He was a Welsh, Welsh minister and actually a doctor uh, in the 20th century, I came across something from, from uh, one of his sermons probably about a year ago. Um, I've never had the, the chance to share this with you. I thought it would it, it fit perfectly here. Here's, here's what he had to say. He said, I remember years ago when I was a young man, I heard some old Welsh preachers talking together. I've never forgotten the phrase that one of them used. They were discussing a young preacher who'd come on the scene, and he was a popular preacher, and the crowds were following this man, and they were discussing this young, brilliant preacher. And I remember they praised him. They all praised him. They said he was a very gifted young man. He was a man of ability. But I remember one of the old men shaking his head and saying, but you know, I'm not sure he's been humbled yet. And then Lloyd-Jones said this. Man, this is powerful to me. How can a man remain what he was if he's gotten near God. And you and I know this. If you've lived for any length of time, you know this, that generally speaking, the only thing that gets us there, 
The only thing that gets near, like I've yet to hear the story of somebody who came to church and gave their life to Jesus and, and their whole life got turned around because everything was going perfectly for them. I, I have yet to hear that story over and over again. My life attests, maybe your life can attest, that it's, our, it's suffering and it's hardship and it's failure and it's things in life that bring us to the end of ourselves that get us near to God like that. And then here's how... Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones finished. He said, when God deals with us, there's a kind of laming. Jacob was a schemer, so sure he could work it out, so sure he could get his way, manipulate, wheedle, and cajole. But when he wrestled with God, when he really met God, he was given a permanent reminder of his weakness and inability and entire dependence upon God, the laming. You get the same thing in the Apostle Paul. God gave him a thorn in the flesh lest he become exalted. He asked for it to be removed. It wasn't. What was it? We're not sure, but it was a laming, a constant reminder of his weakness and inability and entire dependence on God. And then, as he put it, he realized, when I am weak, then I am strong. So what's the point of this? Why do I share this? Here's the point. The picture that we're seeing at the end of David's life is not the picture of a man who always got it right. It's the picture of a man who was the first to admit when he got it wrong. And historically speaking, that's the kind of heart that God can do amazing things in and through. So let me call the worship team up, and we're going to close this down. Uh, when I was putting these teachings in this series together, I had a number of resources that I leaned on. I would look at how other pastors and preachers handled these texts, and then I would look at different authors and theologians and commentaries. And a couple of weeks ago... I heard a pastor say something about David that I decided not to use at the time, but I held on to it, and I decided I wanted to end with it because it meant so much to me. He said that for, for a lot of people, and he was in a context where he had the chance to hear from a lot of people that were kind of skeptical to Christianity. He said, for a lot of people, when they look at the life of David, and specifically the failures of David's life, the failures that we've been looking at for the last three weeks here, there's a tendency to kind of get away from that and say, this is exactly the problem that I have with Christianity. This is exactly the problem that I have with the church, with Christians, with all of it, because this guy's supposed to be one of your heroes, and look at all the hypocrisy in his life. And I love the way he spoke to that, because he simply said, if that's where your mind goes when you look at the failure of David, then there's a really good chance that you're on the way to understanding what the Bible is really all about in a way that I don't even think every Christian does. Because the main purpose of the Bible is not to give us a bunch of examples that we need to follow. The main purpose of the Bible is to show us over and over again, story after story, that even our heroes need a hero. And even the best of us need a savior. And personally, I love the idea that the author of 2 Samuel decided to close down this book and end David's life, highlighting just another one of his failures, because what that means is that there is hope for people who can admit that they have failed as well. And so if I can, after these 11 weeks looking at David's life, I just want to condense his legacy down to two challenges for all of us that we can start applying literally this moment. Number one, David's legacy challenges us. Be the first to admit when you get it wrong. And when you do, apologize without condition, without needing to justify yourself or explain why you did the way that you did. And know that when you do that, as painful as it is, that's not a sign of weakness, that's a sign of greatness. 
our workplaces, our friendships, our families, our churches, our whole world would be a whole lot better if it was filled with more people that knew how to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I'm not saying Christians are better at this than other people. What I am saying is that in Jesus, Christians have more resources to be able to do that than any other group of people on the planet. Number two, and I'll leave you with this, and and really you need this in order to be able to do number one, refuse to try to be the hero of your story and the savior of your own soul. The human heart so naturally tries to do that in a billion different ways. We all have unique ways of doing it. But the truth is our lives are so much easier if we let Jesus be the hero of our story and the savior of our soul. He is so much more qualified to hold that position than we are. And the truth is that is the only way to navigate the peaks and the valleys of our lives and get out clean on the other side. See Jesus being and doing that for you. Build your life on that. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for for King David. Thank you for uh, just a a bare-bones, honest account of the successes and the failures in his life. Thank you that you can use people whose lives are not perfect. Thank thank you that you you can use me. You can use every single person listening to this right now, God. Would you teach us to be people that keep a close watch on our own hearts, that admit quickly and earnestly and graciously when we get it wrong? And God, would would we be the kind of people that allow our failures to drive us back to the feet of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who died for every single sin that we could commit so that our identity rests in him and his finished work and not anything that we can do, Father. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Amen.